It is unprecedented. Um, obviously, I have never covered anything like this in my, my 20 years of reporting. It's a traumatic event that's happening, but the trauma from this event is going to last for years. I believe that the impact has probably been on those in our community with the least, those who already were from a starting point where they didn't have much. Welcome to Disinvested. I'm Tyler Johnson. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to sweep through our country, the past few months have presented an incredible challenge for Connecticut and the rest of America. You already know the story. More than 175,000 dead, millions more infected, unemployment and business closures, a pending housing disaster, students and parents forced to rearrange their lives, and everyone doing their best to deal with isolation and mental health issues. At the same time we were dealing with this health crisis, we saw the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and others set off a series of protests across the country with demands for racial justice. We now find ourselves trying to simultaneously confront a pandemic and a long-standing history of inequality. When we created the Disinvested podcast in 2019, our goal was to highlight the disparities that exist in Greater Hartford and across the country. Every day, too many people struggle to achieve success because of barriers related to their race or ethnicity, the neighborhood where they live, or their economic status. Or as we like to say, race, place, and income. These disparities have existed for a long time, but COVID-19 brought them to the forefront in a way we never could have anticipated. In the special episode of Disinvested, Normal Doesn't Work, we'll examine how the COVID-19 crisis has exposed and exacerbated some of the deepest problems in our country. We'll also talk about our response to the crisis and how the decisions we make now could help build a stronger country or make things much worse. In the beginning of this episode, you heard from Christine Stewart, editor and reporter for ctnewsjunkie.com. She has been covering the COVID-19 crisis in Connecticut since it began. Here's more from Christine. There doesn't seem to be any end in sight. We're all kind of holding our breath and waiting for the fall to see if there's a, a resurgence of the virus. We don't have enough information. And uh, I think that makes a lot of people really nervous. There are a lot of people in very precarious positions right now. I think that COVID has basically put a spotlight on not only socioeconomic inequities, but racial inequities, class inequities. It's really kind of shown that we've had these divisions uh, in our country for a long time. My name is Jacqueline Ray Thomas. I am a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror. I mean, there's no question about it that Black and Latino Residents in the state of Connecticut have been hit the hardest by COVID. I mean, data point after data point shows that African Americans are two and a half times more likely to die from COVID. Latino residents, 67% more likely to die from COVID. Um, the numbers are equally as grim if you're talking about who's likely to be infected. You know, just across the board, when you look at the communities that are being impacted, it, it's largely falling on minorities. If you look at people being able to afford their rent, for example, in April, 17% of Connecticut tenants were not able to make their rent. 
Um, that's up from 5% in a typical April. So you're talking about more than three times the families in, in Connecticut weren't able to make their rent. Three quarters of them Black and Hispanic. Who was able to sort of stay home and physically distance themselves when COVID struck? If you look at the families that were capable of staying home, it's the higher income families, people who are able to telecommute. Well, the service industry, healthcare industry, those jobs, you're not able to telecommute. Those, those folks um, either had to go to work and potentially get sick or not draw a paycheck. Connecticut's Department of Labor data also shows who is drawing unemployment, who was able to actually keep their job. Those jobs also happen to be higher income or middle to higher income. The data on the impact of this virus is staggering, but hearing the individual stories can be even more heartbreaking. I think the biggest stories that stuck with me were some of the families that I spoke with. I spoke with this woman, Olga, who lives in Bridgeport, and her family is undocumented. And her brother-in-law got sick with COVID. He was in the hospital for weeks. She had to take her son to the emergency room because she thought he also had COVID. Her son, thankfully, didn't have COVID. But it also meant that she got stuck with a $2,000 bill, that she has no idea how she's going to get pay it. She's been out of work since COVID. You know, there's just countless stories like that of people who just don't really have access to certain services. I would just like to highlight that Connecticut's one of the most segregated states in the country. Fairfield County, the Bridgeport, Westport, Fairfield area, they're number two in the country. I think underlying all of sort of the the racial tension going on right now, I think an inevitable discussion is coming about Connecticut segregation. You know, I think a lot of people think we've made some significant or enormous progress uh, since even Brown versus Board of Education or since the Fair Housing Act. That's Jason Rojas. He's a state representative for Connecticut's 9th Assembly District, representing the communities of East Hartford and Manchester. So we're talking about the 50s and 60s, where it's really set the stage for uh, I think the type of country that we want to see for ourselves, one in which we live next to each other, in which we go to school with each other, in which we worship together, eat at the same restaurants, live together as neighbors. And we really, those opportunities for that are extremely limited because of how we've chosen uh, to allow policies, both at the federal, state and local level, to dictate exactly what kind of access people have to opportunity. And I think the best way to frame this a conversation around segregation is access to opportunity. And here in Connecticut, 2015, I would say, we passed legislation calling for the Department of Housing to create these opportunity maps. I mean, what we find when we, we apply kind of a, a, a racial lens over that opportunity map, we see that 73% of Blacks and Latinos live in low and very low opportunity areas compared to 26% of whites or 36% of Asians. You know, one on the very personal level, obviously we're impacting individuals' ability to reach the American dream that we all strive for. But this also results in significant amount of additional spending that we have to engage in. We've spent probably three, four billion dollars on addressing Chef versus O'Neill, right, which is an effort to desegregate Hartford schools, just Hartford schools, right? Um, so rather than be proactive and, and help build affordable housing in high opportunity areas that have open seats in their classrooms. Instead, we're paying to build magnet schools and we're paying to spend more money on buses, sending kids all over. We're spending more money on health care because uh, people can't attain the income levels or a job that allows them to secure health care. We pay maybe $40,000 a year 
to incarcerate somebody, we're only spending on average $14,000 a year to educate a student. Um, and so as a policymaker, these are some of the most difficult issues that we have to deal with uh, because of the fear that people have about either people of color, about low-income people, or just people that they're generally just not familiar with, about those people becoming their neighbor. In his role as state representative, Jason has heard from constituents suffering the worst consequences of this virus. You know, none of the outcomes that we're seeing so far from COVID are much of a surprise to me. It's hard to fully appreciate the impact of COVID like this unless you actually know people, you know, who have been disproportionately impacted or live in a community with lots of people who have been disproportionately impacted. And we don't do that because we live in a relatively segregated society. And if you look at the numbers, it really tells a story about what the impact of COVID has been and how disproportionate it has been to, again, uh, lower opportunity communities. We were just met with this crush of need from our constituents, people in need of help in the most desperate of situations. We're talking about people living week after week after week without any income. Folks were already struggling, um, and this just made it that much worse. Um, so it's been an incredibly challenging time for, for me as a legislator. But, you know, I had to constantly remind myself that I'm sitting here with a job, with healthcare, not worried about food and, and relatively secure. So there was a lot of guilt that went along with being a legislator during these last four months. Structural racism and systemic uh, racism manifests itself in every walk of life, in every aspect of our community. Here's Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. Now, people are affected by it differently, but it manifests itself in ways that have almost unfortunately become normal. COVID-19 has laid bare these uh, disparities. The treatments, the access to health care, food insecurity, when we are all now forced to work uh, in a remote or educate uh, our children in a remote posture, there are vast swaths of the uh, African-American and Latino community that do not have access to the broadband, so their children remain at a disadvantage. Over the past couple years, the Hartford Foundation examined an array of data on Greater Hartford and determined that far too many residents, especially Black and Latinx residents, were being excluded from opportunity. The only way for the region to reach its potential is to achieve greater racial, geographic, and economic inclusion. Sadly, the COVID-19 pandemic has confirmed what the data and people on the ground have been saying for years. The question is, where do we go from here? You have to begin to first acknowledge uh, that this is a very real problem. You know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who said, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. I believe that I, I want to believe and I'm cautiously optimistic that we've reached that tipping point that a significant number of Americans are acknowledging and determining that these inequities and the systemic and, and structural racism that has existed in this country exists and is unacceptable. That's the first step. Getting people to acknowledge and address inequity is easier said than done. We'll talk about specific solutions later in the episode. But first, in order to understand the racial and economic disparities that exist today, it's important to know the history that led us to this moment. 
Dr. Peniel Joseph is the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values and a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. He is the author of The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. When we think about 2020, in a lot of ways, this goes back to uh, the end of racial slavery in 1865, because anti-Black racism is the organizing principle of the racial caste system in the United States. So everybody in this country is on a racial hierarchy based on their closeness or their distance to Blackness. So the only way you get, you're going to get racial justice in the country is if you defeat anti-Black racism, right? Um, and that's very, very important for us to remember. After the Civil War, America entered the period known as Reconstruction. Congress passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which made it illegal to deny citizenship or voting rights to anyone based on their race. There was a rise in Black activism and some Black people served as elected officials. However, this was quickly met with a wave of white supremacy. And this is a version of white supremacy that really criminalized Black people through the convict lease system, arrested, incarcerated, punished them, uh, certainly lynched thousands of African-Americans and killed tens of thousands more, uh, institutionalized uh, racial segregation, and really erected thousands of policies at the local, at the state, and at the national level that secured Black subordination and immiseration. African-Americans, even those who owned land legally, get that land taken away from them and swindled at times at the point of a bayonet and, a, and an armed rifle. What we see is a lot of racial violence. The Tulsa racial massacre in 1921 is really only the, um, the largest of a series of massacres that really start in the 1870s all throughout Mississippi, South Carolina, um, Texas, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Elaine, Arkansas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rosewood, Florida. So you have a series of, of white supremacist racial pogroms against Black people. So Reconstruction is the first effort. When we think about the 1950s and 60s, we can make an argument. There's a second Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, the Brown desegregation decision. But the high point of desegregation is going to be 1988. And ever since then, federal courts, lower courts, Supreme Court have really ratcheted up uh, the resegregation of public schools in the United States. According to Dr. Joseph, the current period from 2008 to 2020 could be viewed as a third effort at American Reconstruction. Before even you get to COVID-19, we had a lot of social movements in terms of immigration rights, in terms of LGBTQ rights, in terms of March for Our Lives and Me Too and women's marches, Native Americans who were protesting against the pipeline and the, and the Dakotas. Black Lives Matter in 2013 really started a different iteration of both the civil rights Black power movement. So we really had quite a few social movements that were percolating all across the United States. And then the, the pandemic hit, and certainly communities of color were very much impacted the hardest. And then the public execution of George Floyd really brought us to uh, a tipping point. And People are protesting against systemic racism and white supremacy in every facet of American life, from Confederate statues to corporate America and the institutional racism and segregation there, 
So we're really seeing something remarkable, but it's really deeply, deeply rooted in our own history. When I talk about reparations, the root word of reparations is repair. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine and creator of the landmark 1619 Project. Her recent article, What is Owed, discusses reparations and what this country owes to Black Americans. She recently spoke with the Hartford Foundation's Black Giving Circle. How do you repair the damage that was done? Black people enter emancipation with zero property, zero income, no homes, no lands. Historian Carrie Lee Merritt says that uh, Black people at emancipation were the only people in the history of this country who, as a people, had zero capital. But we don't even have to go back to slavery for reparations. Because even though the way we're taught about this history um, in our K-12 education is Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and then we blink and it's 1963 and the March on Washington, there was a hundred year period in between that. And in that hundred years, we had legalized racial apartheid where black people underwent racial terrorism and were discriminated against. I am of the first generation, first generation of black people in the history of this country since 1619 who were born with full rights of citizenship. So everything that we're told that Black people should do to just pull up our bootstraps will not work to eradicate a 350-year head start that white Americans got. I mean, unfortunately, we can speak specifically about Hartford or we can speak about any city with a large number of Black folks, and you will find the same disparities in any city uh, in this country. One thing that this pandemic has shown us is all of the lies we've been told about we can't afford to provide a universal basic income. We can't afford to provide rent relief. The pandemic has shown that's a lie. When the government wanted to print $3 trillion worth of money, it printed $3 trillion worth of money and our country is still functioning. Inequality is not natural. Inequality is not inevitable. We create it and we can uncreate it. If you only take one thing away from this podcast, it should be this. The disparities that we see today, the same ones being highlighted by COVID-19, didn't happen by accident. They are the results of policy choices, structural racism, and disinvestment in neighborhoods, dating back decades and decades. Here is Courtney Sanders. She's a policy analyst with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. They're a nonpartisan institute whose mission is to reduce poverty and inequality. Policy is not race neutral. Many longstanding policies that affect our ability to invest in people and communities now were adopted within a culture and time where it was believed that white people were inherently superior to people of other racial groups. So, for instance, in the post-Reconstruction era, wealthy white landowners in Mississippi demanded and won a constitutional requirement for a three-fifths vote in both houses of the legislature for all state tax increases. And what that is, is supermajority laws. The delegate who introduced the supermajority requirement stated, all understood and desired that some scheme would be evolved, which would effectively remove from the sphere of politics in the state, the ignorant and unpatriotic Negro. So that was what the result was. This was the goal, right? This was something that was adopted in the South originally, but the consequences were everywhere. In May, Sanders co-authored a report titled Three Principles for Anti-Racist, Equitable State Response to COVID-19, and a Stronger Recovery. 
the report proposed three principles to guide policymakers in their response to COVID-19. Number one, targeting aid to those most in need. Number two, advancing anti-racist and equitable policies, both short-term and long-term. And number three, protecting state finances to preserve long-term economic growth and opportunity. We asked her whether states' responses to COVID-19 could end up making disparities even worse. Yeah, so the question about budget cuts, right? That, it's a, that's a very good question, actually, because COVID-19 response is so important, and states have choices to make at every turn. One thing we continue to learn with every single economic downturn is that states have a choice. They can cut services, often that harm families that are most in need, or raise revenue. That's a racialized choice. And cutting budgets and giving tax breaks are also a racialized choice, one that could continue to exacerbate inequities for communities of color. Black unemployment rate is twice as high and has been for decades. White households in this country own about 87% of all wealth, and the top 10% of white households own about two-thirds of all wealth. And certainly Black and Latinx women are disproportionately represented in low-wage work, especially the work that is essential work. There are many families that are living in poverty that will not recover as quickly and they'll still have the scars of what's happening right now with COVID-19. We may be all in this together, but the impact is not the same. States have a critical policy choice to make. They can repeat and exacerbate these inequalities and inequities, which also will damage the economy or they can set another course. So what might a productive response to the COVID-19 crisis look like? In May, the New York Times published an article titled The Coronavirus and the Cities We Need. The article states that segregation not only harms those in low-opportunity neighborhoods, but causes immense damage to society as a whole. Addressing the root causes of inequality in our communities would improve our economy, help us rebound from this pandemic, and make us less vulnerable to the next crisis. My name is Benjamin Applebaum. I'm the lead writer on business and economic issues for the editorial board of The New York Times. What makes cities special is that so many people are interacting there. And so when you are segregating a city, when you are effectively limiting the interactions among the population of people who live in a city, preventing lower income children from being in the same schools as their wealthier peers, uh, from going on to college, from having good jobs, from even shopping or eating in the same places as other people, you're effectively limiting the value of a city. The inequalities in American life have become so pronounced that the poor literally die sooner than the rich. Even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, the gap in life expectancy between, you know, essentially very close neighborhoods in some American cities is decades. A child born in a wealthy part of Chicago is likely to live decades longer than a child born in the poorest parts of Chicago. The coronavirus is an example of the ways in which that plays out. People in poor communities are more likely to have uh, health conditions that exacerbated uh, the virus if they got it. They also are more likely to continue to need to go to work and to be exposed to the virus. They tend to live in denser neighborhoods. They have less access to high quality health care. So it, it ramifies through society on sort of every dimension. When something bad happens, it ends up being the, 
the people who can least afford to take the hit, who take the hardest hit. In our series, we propose that that building affordable housing, not just building affordable housing, but integrating affordable housing into more affluent neighborhoods is really the only sustainable solution to this complex of problems. The only way that we deal with this in a long-term sense uh, is to create a community of shared interests, to make sure that we are living together uh, and that we understand our collective responsibility to each other. And that's where you build the political foundation to actually deliver lasting change. The COVID-19 crisis presents an opportunity to change our course. But for that change to be sustainable, we need a large cross-section of the population to buy in, including people who benefit from our current system. How do you convince people to embrace change when they are personally doing fine? So the case that I like to make to people is this. The United States, over the last 50 years, has seen slower economic growth with each decade. The 80s were slower than the 70s. The 90s were slower than the 80s. People don't believe me when I say this, but you can go look at the math. Uh, and the 2000s were slower than the 90s. Uh, and this decade has ended in a cataclysm or the new ones beginning with a cataclysm. Uh, things are not going well in this society. And while some people have managed to maintain or even increase their prosperity, if one takes a long-term view, one should be extremely concerned about this trajectory and about the sustainability of our society on current terms, or even if not its sustainability, about its prosperity. We could be doing better, all of us. We would all benefit from opening up opportunity to the entire population. We would all benefit from ensuring that every American has the chance to realize their potential. I saw an amazing study recently about the way that you know, literally the walls of suburban properties have been increasing in height in some areas. People are literally building taller walls to hide behind. And you can try that. You can try to keep building up the height of your wall and hoping that you can hide behind it. But to my mind, a much better solution is uh, to lift up the quality of life of the people that are falling behind and in that shared prosperity to, to find, uh, to create a stronger country. And segregation impacts all kids, right? Not just students of color, but it also sets up a lot of our white students for failure. Once again, Jason Rojas, state representative for Connecticut's 9th Assembly District. Because they're going to be coming of age and entering a world um, which is going to be far more diverse than the one they live in today. And they need to be prepared to be able to work with people from all walks of life. Um, and if we can have our schools reflect the world in which our children are going to be adults in, um, I think the world will be a much better place. We asked Jason what type of equitable policies he'd like to see implemented. You know, I, I, the first thing I would want to do is really get arrive at a workforce development system that provides an opportunity for people to these communities to access training, not your traditional four-year college education, uh, but certificate programs. Um, you know, something that's offered by workforce investment boards or community colleges to really get people into the jobs that do exist out there. Um, we can look at land use uh, reform and, and zoning reform. You know, that is a really hot topic right now. Childcare is another gigantic issue, right? Too many of our families don't have access to high quality childcare. Um, we want to look at the development of affordable housing. How do we develop affordable housing in communities where there's higher opportunity? Public safety is another area, right? How do we get families provide opportunities for families to live in areas where there's lower crime and less childhood trauma on young people, which has long-term effects for kids. In our first season of Disinvested, we explored a wide array of potential solutions to address race, place, and income-based disparities. These solutions include everything from affordable housing to community safety to educational equity and workforce development programs. You can listen to our first season to hear nearly 100 experts speak on these topics and much more.
Real change will take years or even generations of work, and no one can do it alone. We need cooperation between government, nonprofits, the private sector, researchers, and most importantly, community residents. It won't be easy, but nothing worthwhile ever is. You know, I think uh, there's a, a, a strong desire out there to find some kind of silver bullet solutions to what we're facing today. Uh, systemic racism is going to require systemic solutions. People need to be prepared to be in this for the long haul. And we can't uh, lose the energy and, and lose the care and concern that I've seen expressed at rallies across the state and communities that I would never thought there would be a Black Lives Matter uh, rally. Over time, as people get more comfortable, we might lose that sense of urgency. And I just hope that we don't. And as a black man, it has been interesting that there are clearly instances of overt racism, and those are almost comical. They just don't warrant or justify your time and your energy. Jay Williams, president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. But there are many other instances that may not be explicit or overt racism, but when you step back to think about it, they are the manifestation of the structural racism that has existed. You know, have examples, it's not that I keep track of them, but some of them that I, you know, look back at now, you know, coming home from church late one evening, was pulled over by a police officer, uh, and then was asked to step out of the car. Again, in the middle of the night, uh, was asked a series of questions, and, and ultimately was told that the reason I was questioned was because I looked like a robbery suspect. And it wasn't until I had an opportunity to, to take a breath after the whole encounter, I wondered how in a moving vehicle, you know, in the middle of the night, that I look enough like a robbery suspect to be pulled over and pulled out of my car. There was an instance where I was sitting on an airplane and in the middle of the tarmac, their law enforcement boarded the plane and no one knew what was going on. And before I knew it, there was a law enforcement officer in front of my seat, a law enforcement officer behind my seat. The one in front had his hand on his weapon. It wasn't drawn, but it was clearly on his weapon. I was asked a series of questions about who I was, where I was from. All the while, mind you, in my pocket was my pass to enter into the White House freely, because at that point I was working at the White House. After a series of questions, uh, the law enforcement officers depart the plane. No explanation to me or to anyone else. And while I don't think that was overtly racist, here I sat as one of the handful of African-Americans on that plane now with, I'm sure, everybody wondering, why was I questioned? What was that about? You know, what did I do? And I think the most recent one uh, that was, uh, you know, during my time as president of the Hartford Foundation, I serve on uh, various boards and I was serving on a particular board. I'd been on that board for about a year. Uh, one of my fellow board members hadn't seen me uh, in a few months. I had actually grown my hair out. And after the board meeting, he came up to me and said, Jay, I hadn't seen you in a while. And he said, when I first saw you, I saw your hair and it made me think, is that a guy I trust to run a, a billion dollar foundation? And he laughed and, and, and thought nothing of how his statement landed, what his statement was suggesting, but what his statement was suggesting that the same individual that I was when he last saw me three or four months ago, uh, we had cordial conversations. He was very complimentary. Just the change in my hair presented in his mind a picture of someone who he would have to question the capability, the competence, and the trustworthiness 
to run the same organization that I had been running from the day that we met. And this is, you know, me who I'm blessed to have resources and imagine how that affects others who perhaps are less equipped or less in a position to respond or whose well-being rests on some people who have that, that perspective of them. You know, there have been multiple instances throughout my life and career where I am the only or one of the few African-Americans. I went to an elementary school that for two years, I was the only African-American student in the entire school. As mayor of Youngstown, I was elected as the first African-American of Youngstown, of my hometown. But during the campaign, it was made very clear to me the parts of my own city where I was not only unwelcome, but I was, I and my supporters were uh, on the receiving end of, of racial epithets and hostilities that shook me to my core, uh, even at that point, it was in, in 2005 as I was running. I was born uh, and proud, have lived and look forward to continuing to live my life as an African-American, as a Black uh, American, and you know all the pain, the glory, uh, the pride that comes with that. That being said, it is clear to me that no matter what title, position, educational attainment, accomplishments I hold or may have achieved, I am first and foremost a black man. And in the eyes of far too many, position matters not. Merit often matters not. And that's unfortunate. My role and our role collectively, whether you're black or white in this country, is to begin to systematically dismantle these experiences for for the betterment of us all. What people can do is educate themselves about African-American history and our racial history in the United States but also make a commitment to be anti-racist. Here again is Dr. Peniel Joseph, professor of history at the University of Texas and author of The Sword and the Shield. Which means that you're pushing back against racial inequity, both in your personal life and professionally. If you're in an all-white suburb, if you're in an all-white organization, you ask the hard questions of why is this this way? Another is certainly voting and voting for people who are saying that they're going to make anti-racism a deep a core commitment of whatever policy proposals they have. And then finally, empathy. Martin Luther King Jr. was very, very important and right on this score is that you have to transform public policies and you have to change hearts and minds at the same time. So we need to be committed and it's going to really take the work of not just one generation, but multiple generations to do this. But, you know, I always tell people, Uh, Don't feel bad because that's the United States. You know, that one of the interesting parts as a historian is seeing people try to confront this history now. But when you're into this history for decades and decades, you're like, you know, the the triumphs are there and everyone wants to focus on that. But no, it's the triumph and the tragic. So that's everyone. There's no no hands are clean um, in in the country. The COVID-19 crisis has been difficult on all of us. And unfortunately, we still have a long way to go. But we will get out of this eventually. And as we plan for life after COVID, we should consider how we might emerge from this crisis a stronger and more unified community. COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on our country and brought to the surface many of the deepest problems in our society. We've seen how the pandemic and our nation's longstanding racial, geographic, and economic disparities are closely intertwined. The good news, as many of our guests on this episode have noted, is that we created these problems and we have the power to fix them. And that is a reason to be hopeful. 
We'll leave you with these final thoughts from Courtney Sanders of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. I like to say, you know, when I'm talking to friends and and, and talking to colleagues, I remind them that we cannot go back to normal. Normal doesn't work for Black and brown communities and immigrants and indigenous people or people stuck in low-paid jobs or people who are often kept from seeing their kids and their families and community thrive. Normal doesn't work for the economy writ large. And as we continue to leave talent and potential untapped and on the table by under-resourcing and underserving large swaths of people, whether that be black, brown, or white, normal doesn't work. As an African-American woman right now, I'm thinking a lot about the investments we can make and the types of policies we can make in order for people to feel free, to feel safe, have access to the best schools. And people can go into a job and know that it's not the color of their skin that is going to give them the lowest wage or even not getting called back to begin with. This is an opportunity to continue to make investments in the people who are most in need and to make sure that We are really, as a country, staying united. Remember our values. Remember that we're stronger together. And my hope is that we'll get there eventually. This has been a special episode of Disinvested. Normal doesn't work. I'm Tyler Johnson. Thanks for listening. The hoods don't like us because we're from the hood. We try to This podcast is created by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, produced by Tom Zalesnak and Michaela Mendegraal. Thanks to everyone who appeared in this episode. This episode includes two songs by Oris Jenkins, Three Tall Trees, and Birmingham. Our opening song is Falling by Among the Acres. Subscribe to the Disinvested Podcast to listen to our first season of the podcast and hear future episodes. You can find us on Apple Music, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, or at disinvested.com. To learn more about the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, visit hfpg.org. Maybe there's a place that I can do what I please. The neighbors killed my dog with a poison. Sure, it sounds like I'm down in Birmingham. Paid my own way onto network prime time. Afraid of the dark, they wouldn't give me a dime. Had to throw my baby into a can. Because of stubbornness like in Birmingham, my own people try to say I never did a thing. They don't know how much I gave to Dr. King. They thought all I cared about was Uncle Sam. That sort of thing gonna keep you in Birmingham. Now I hope the natives don't know.